Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, the radio show and podcast for those who won't just take things on faith. Coming to you from Grand Rapids, Michigan, where total depravity is a way of life. You can find us online at doubtcast.org or freethoughtblogs.com slash reasonable doubts. You can listen to us on Public Reality Radio, WPRR, Ada, Grand Rapids, and W237CZ, Hudsonville. 1680 AM and 95.3 FM, and streaming at publicrealityradio.org. My name is Dave Fletcher, and with me in the studio, my fellow doubtcasters, Mr. Jeremy Bean. Hello. Teen pop sensation, Justin Schieber. Hello. And Dr. Professor Luke Galen. Good morning. Coming up on today's show, God Thinks Like You, Counter-Apologetics, Polyatheism, a Tulip Tutorial, a Vatican scandal not involving the abuse of children, at least not directly. And a new feature that we may never do again, when Southern preachers attack. Let's start off, shall we, by looking at the most recent scandal from the Vatican. Yeah, it's getting to the point where these Vatican scandals are starting to bore me. Uh, (laughs) I I think after this we should just make a policy, since, since the Vatican seems intent on imploding, uh, I think we should just make a policy that we're not going to cover any future scandals until the Pope himself personally murders someone. <laughs> so That's Dan Brown's next book. Right? <laughs> we'll, we'll be back next episode, <laughs> yeah, probably. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'll go. You guys aren't going to believe this. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, yes, the, the, latest, the latest scandal, as... Dave pointed out, at least doesn't involve the abuse of children. Uh, it involves a, a kind of widespread banking scandal, mm-hmm. uh, some money laundering, and a host of other shady backroom dealings between various different factions within the Vatican. The scandal is being called Vataleaks. I thought that was their plumbing problems. I can't decide if that's clever or just irritating. Like every time there's a political scandal, they add gate yeah, to it. Yeah, right. right. Um, yeah. I, I, but this does involve leaked documents. So, yes, it does. Okay. Um, there, there are insiders who are leaking these documents. Um, one of them was the Pope's personal butler. Yes, his own Alfred. Uh, there might be as many as 20 more people, uh, yes. and the Vatican is launching an investigation. They've actually imprisoned the Pope's butler. Yes. Yeah. Uh, he's in a cell at the Vatican right now, and some people think he might end up being charged in an Italian court and might end up uh, in jail for about 20 years, possibly, for <laughs> leaking documents well, of a head of state. And there's been a suggestion that he may be willing to name names yeah. of other people who yeah. were involved, in, which means he may get off easier than 20 years. Yeah, they've been uh, really trying to keep a lid on this. They uh, mm. Even a month before this arrest, uh, they had this big um, pontifical mandate for all these investigative teams to uh, kind of track down those responsible for these for these leaks. 
there, Vatican there, detectives. The Vatican police. <laughs> What, what are some of the things in these documents that's so scandalous? Well, there's a lot of stuff, and to be quite frank, I, I don't really understand all of it. Uh, I don't think all the details have come into sharp focus yeah, yet. Yeah, and when it comes to money laundering, we're like the guys in office space. Yeah, yeah, no, we don't know a thing about that. I don't really understand that. Some of the details that have been leaked out is uh, stuff about a former deputy governor of Vatican City calling attention to uh, what – the Guardian article, Pope's Butler charged over leaked Vatican letters, calls inflated contracts with friendly companies and false invoicing and mis- missing cash. Hmm. Also, a, a bizarre media scandal. Apparently, the editor of one of the Vatican's newspapers started a gay smear campaign against oh, the yeah. editor, a rival editor, and even got help from a newspaper that's owned by the Berlusconi family. Mm. Uh, so connections with the Berlusconi government. In fact, that's the letters also share uh, what the article calls collusion between the Berlusconi government and the Vatican over how to avoid EU pressure to make the Catholic Church oh, pay yeah. tax on its right. properties. Mm. Also, a lot of uh, suspicious donations, really huge cash donations, sometimes directly to the Pope, from various different banks, I think the insinuation there is that these might be bribes or evidence of graft going on. Uh, and there's even when you get into the the documents considering Cardinal Teresco Bertoni, again, it's really hard to paint a picture of exactly what happened, but it looks like he's in some really serious water with international financing <laughs> conspiracies. <laughs> And uh, um, involved, which even involved a, uh, a suicide of a high-profile banker. Right. Um, so there's a lot that the Vatican is trying to keep under the lid right now. A journalist by the name of Gianluigi Nuzzi. Yeah. Um, that's yeah. that's my which best is a guess. Great name for an Italian journalist. I'm <laughs> <laughs> <Hey>, Nuzzi. <laughs> Uh, he published a book called, <laughs> recently called Your Holiness. Mm-hmm. Um, Which contained letters. Contained a lot of the leaked letters. Yep. Uh, some of his sources were saying things like uh, their motivation for doing this uh, was coming from, quote, hypocrisy within the Vatican goes unchallenged and the scandals multiply. And this indivo- individual said, after Pope John Paul II's death, I started putting aside copies of some of the documents that came into my possession thanks to my work. Initially, I did it sporadically. When I saw that the when I saw that the truth coming out in the newspapers and the official speeches didn't match the truth in the documents, I put everything aside in a folder and tried to investigate it. And uh, yes, he most likely this source had many accom- accomplices. So mm-hmm. it'll be interesting to see how this one develops yeah. in the weeks and months and possibly years to come. It's become clear that that no one in the Vatican is ever going to get prosecuted for the child sex abuse scandal. Maybe because this involves money, um, it may have farther reaching consequences because people care a lot more about money than they care about protecting children. But I'm still suspicious that anything will will come of this outside of embarrassment. It appears that that Bertoni guy, Mm -hmm. who's uh, apparently involved in some pretty shady business – it appears that Benedict is is fully behind him. Right. Uh, he doesn't appear to be. Um, 
Yeah, we should point out that the documents don't implicate the Pope in anything. Right, but right. he is nevertheless. But he's aligning himself with aligning very, this. very yeah, suspicious exactly. figures. He's not turning <clears throat> on these people. There is some house cleaning going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Vatican uh, Bank's president got fired, and though this is probably not connected to the VataLeaks scandal, Cardinal Bernard Law that we talked about in the last episode, one of our favorites. Yeah, the the head of the Boston Archdiocese mm-hmm. who uh, w- had to be kicked upstairs. To the Vatican uh, when American parishioners didn't want him. Uh, well, he's he's just resigned as his uh, in his job as the head of the Roman Basilica. Now he still occupies other offices in the Vatican. So but, he's still on the payroll. Yeah. But these are done in five-year terms. So okay. uh, it's possible that when his terms are up, he'll be leaving those as well. Mm. Uh, so maybe at least something good is coming out of the the pressure. That's being put on the yeah. Vatican, at least if it's going to force them to do some house cleaning. But, uh, yeah. Well, we shall see where that takes us. When they, uh, Whenever I think about them going broke, I think about, like, you know, he's like, we have to, like, sell some stuff to make money. And how about, <laughs> and then they, like, open up the Vatican Library. My fantasy is that there's, like, on a street in Rome, you could browse books and you'd be like, you know, what's this Codex Vaticanus? Uh, that's, that is a very old book. And, I don't know. It dates back to only 400? I don't know. I don't know. I'll give you 10 lira for it. <laughs> <laughs> Look at the quality of this binding. Hey, come back. Uh, well, uh, let's move on to some God Thinks Like You. It's really springtime for uh, God Thinks Like You, and that is is that people's projections out there into the ether mm. become their religious beliefs. But I think there's a very important study. Some of this was hinted at before, if our listeners remember back. I talked about some tantalizing studies earlier that, that looked at people who uh, have deficits in the, the uh, ability to mentalize their theory of mind, which we call on the autism spectrum mm-hmm. or Asperger's okay. disorder in a mild form. That is, uh, that the hypothesis is, is that if people believe in God to the extent that they are good at projecting minds out there into, th- into other people, what's, what are you thinking? What does that facial expression mean? The people who have deficits in that area like those on the autism spectrum, would have lower beliefs in God because they literally would have less of a tendency to project mm-hmm. out their minds. And, in fact, there was a, a recent study that was done that confirms that and several different – it's a series of studies by uh, – It's an underactive agency detection. Exactly. Uh, the, the the lead author is Noren Zayon. Uh, I've talked about some of his work before. He's on fire. And uh, Will Gervais, who also some we of his studies – We keep talking about that guy. Yeah, this guy's on fire. But uh, they have a paper out called Mentalizing Deficits Constrained Belief in a Personal God. And just like the title suggests, they found in a series of several studies, some of which just looked at the general population, uh, where mm. people fall on that spectrum of, um, uh, of like mentalizing ability. That is the ability to say, okay, you know, read facial expressions or think about what Jeremy's thinking about Dave and that mm-hmm. sort of thing, uh, and that um, and that when you put people on that on that continuum, it turns out that that uh, sort of correlates with the person's belief in a personal God, and when they do all kinds of statistical controls, it it's what we call it mediates that relationship. That is, 
your belief in a personal God to some extent is determined by your ability to mentalize. Hmm. Those people who, like we talked about, like Asperger's disorder, who just don't think that much about other people's thoughts tend to have lower belief in personal God. The other thing that was cool, though, about the study was it explains they also looked at the gender gap, which we've, you know, most people are probably familiar with this, even if you know very little, just by looking around, that women tend to be more believers in gods and spiritual natures than, than men. Sometimes that, depending on how you ask the question, you get differences like 10 points or more, 10 percentage wow. points, where women's, their church attendance is higher, but also they believe more in spiritual and uh, and woo-woo type stuff than men, however you want to rank it. Well, they did is they, they it's also known that men tend to have higher rates on or score higher on the autism spectrum. The Asperger disorder rates are higher for men. I think in kids, like full-blown autism disorders is like a four-to-one hmm. male-to-female ratio. So, you know, those things seem like separate <clears throat> ideas. What is belief and gods have to do with the autistic spectrum have to do with gender disorder. But what these authors did was is that they looked at the, when they put all three of those together, they found that the gender gap in belief in God, again, was determined to some extent by the deficits in mentalizing that men have relative to women. Hmm. So, you know, a lot of people, uh, there are numerous other reasons that women might believe in gods, more cultural reasons that mm-hmm. they might join groups more, for example, or have more social contact, which brings them to churches. But this one would suggest that they literally, on a, on a level of mentalizing, it's because women are better about thinking about other people's thoughts mm. that leads to them thinking about God's thoughts. And whereas men tend to have less tendency to do that, like men tend to be more into like, you know, how does this machine work or, mm-hmm. you know. When your wife is yelling at you, you think about, boy, uh, I wonder if I should fix the dishwasher or whatever. <laughs> Don't you listen to me? Uh, that, that would be relate <laughs> to things like, you know, that what religious people report all the time. That is, they think about what God thinks about them and that sort of thing. So that's what I mentioned before. This is a classic sort of God thinks like you finding. And that is, is that why do you, why do we think God thinks about us? It's due to our, our, our projections of mentalizing abilities mm-hmm. out there. So is this all just an attempt by the um, psychological community to get atheism added to the autism spectrum? <laughs> it would also explain, you know, we've joked about this Maybe before. Maybe you could too, use that as a diagnosis. That's, that's Mr. <laughs> Fitz's next book. It, it would explain yeah. the social skills at some of the gatherings that we're at, I would imagine. Yeah. <laughs> you said it. Okay, you Straight told me about your mouth, as it were. you told me about your collection of sci-fi figures for an hour now. I'm going to move <laughs> over to get it we, it does appear. No, I mean, all joking aside, it does appear. You know, I've had other people ask me that before in different contexts when I talk about like personality research or gender things, and that is why is it that you go to uh, you know atheist or skeptical gatherings and it's like three-quarters men or 80% men, mm-hmm. you know, and a lot of the females are there because maybe their partners are that or some things like that. And that's not to detract from there's all kinds of great women skeptics out there, but there, it's that gender gap. When you look at any other religious, you know, or any other demographic thing, it's huge. Right, right. Mm-hmm. It's huge. Why is it that men seem to be much more, you're not thinking about the evidence. Who cares about how it makes you feel? We have to realize to some extent that, that, is, that that's a very sort of male way of looking at things. A lot of people's religion, when they talk about religion, is, you know, I can't imagine a world in which there's no purpose or design or God doesn't think about me or things like that. I would feel very alone. Those things don't register with a lot of men, but those are the reasons that many people have for believing. Hmm. 
Right. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's a very important, this sort of work is very important. And the, the next wave is going to be with kids. That is to, to hmm. those, these abilities come online as our brain develops. I mean, you know, not many of us have reproduced, but those that have probably realized that, that kids, you can almost see them start to develop this ability to think about, to project out there into what other people are thinking. It's a skill. Yeah. You know what? I just, I just had this experience the other day with my daughter who's now 20 months old, and she's incredibly verbal for her age. She she knows a ton of words. Um, but just the other day, I, I caught her doing this when um, one of her sisters was sad, and she walked up to me and said, Bubba, sad. And that she had she had the concept that her sister was what her sister was feeling, yeah. not not I'm sad, but yeah. that this other person is feeling and could this. hold that in her mind and it's, notify you about it. Exactly, yeah. it's really I mean it's so much. By the way, those of you listening and those of you in the room who don't have children, you need to do it just because it's so much fun <laughs> to experiment with them and see how their brains work because. Man, it's amazing. Give her the. Um, you don't need to have your own kids for that. Give her the. No, you can experiment um, on other people's children you can too. Just take just, take uh, other people's children. Yeah. Give her yeah. the, the false belief task where you do that thing where you sw- where you have yeah. a doll, then right, they move, right. leave the room, and you switch the marble. I, I, I've back. been meaning to do that actually. Now, to, when is that? When uh, the. Theory of mind kind of comes they online. They say it's about three, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, depending that's on the, the, depending on which yeah, task you're looking at, they they have a thing where before that time they're very egocentric about things. Mm-hmm. Like if they were younger, right. she would just say, "Okay, sisters." crying, what's up with that? Yeah. But then as they learn the ability to place themselves into that, that she knows things that I don't, right. she there's, feels things There's a distinction between different, uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so my incredibly advanced child might be yeah. able to do the uh, the, the false but belief that's, But here's the thing, though. We'll, we'll talk, I think, and we're going to do some episodes in this in the summer, but the, the big area now is in developmental psychology where they look at when kids develop concepts of gods and things like that other than what they're you know, they get from their parents. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, if you're religious, you have at a very young age, you're always telling your kids Jesus loves you and right. God's watching you. And, you know, you're right. And, but when <clears throat> kids start to get the fact when they start thinking about they need theory of mind in order to say, what things does God know? Does he know things that mommy doesn't know? Mm-hmm. Does he you know? Uh, would Could I fool God? Does he know what I think? All those things involve the ability. You have to have the ability to have theory of mind. Right. And so what the, the, the vanguard of research is looking at is it gets at these questions. Is religion natural? Is atheism you know, or, or skepticism mm-hmm. unnatural then? Mm-hmm. Uh, do you need certain brain parts to be operative in order to do that kind of thing? What is cultural and what is biological? Do, yeah, does the, 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 does, does the brain, it's, is it sort of prepared there for the cultural concepts to come in there and fill in the spaces and say, oh, that, that, that sensation that you have that you're being watched, that's God, that kind of mm. thing. Right. We have a, another mm. kind of follow-up, God thinks like you, uh, follow-up from, from our last episode, the Skeptic's Psych of Religion Toolkit. I prefer to call it my Ten Commandments. Yes, Not Luke. that it's grandiose. <laughs> Luke's Ten Commandments, uh, or your tenfold path, I think you called it as well. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Um, uh, we, we, talk, uh, we presented that last time as a, a set of tools that a skeptic could use to assess uh, articles and studies that you see coming out on uh, that, that purport to show some sort of benefit to religion. 
recently there was a sermon published by Ronald Snyder called The Scandal of the Evangelical Conscience, which was getting uh, a lot of news in Christian public publications. Snyder was making the case, uh, he was basically sharing a lot of things that we've mentioned on the show before as far as the gap between what Christians profess to believe and profess to think is is ethical or moral to do and what they actually do. Cider pointed out the percentage of born-again Christians who experience divorce is higher than their secular counterparts or that only 10% of evangelicals tithe or that cohabitation rates are just a tiny bit lower for born-again adults than the general public. He cited a greater degree of racism. Baptists and evangelicals... I'm shocked by that one. Yeah. <laughs> Baptists and evangelicals are among the most likely to object to having black neighbors or uh, the lack of giving uh, in proportion to income. The richer Christians become, evangelicals become, the less they give in proportion to mm. their income. A lot of these we've uh, talked about before. Yeah. A quarter of traditional evangelicals that don't think premarital sex is wrong... Uh, a huge, high, very high rate of domestic violence amongst evangelicals. All of these things were mentioned in Sider's sermon, The Scandal of the Evangelical Conscience, and he was using really good poll data. He was using Christian polling data even. Mm. He was using people like George Barna's group, or uh, while the Gallup organization is not uh, a Christian organization, he, George Gallup himself is a Christian. Right. So he mentions all this data. There was a response to this on Professor John Stackhouse's weblog called Evangelicals Are Not As Bad As We Reported. In which we, uh, we us personally or meaning uh as it his meaning own his own yeah. his own people, not as bad as evangelicals have reported. Ah, okay. Mm. Where Stackhouse says he says, Are these then not grounds for genuine alarm? Isn't Snyder right to say there is a crisis of dis disobedience in the evangelical world today? I'm suggesting that the answer to that question depends largely on what one means by the evangelical world. And so he starts to say that this data really doesn't apply to born-again believers. And the reason is what evangelical is not defined properly. He notes... When pollsters make more careful distinctions between nominal Christians and devout believers, there is evidence that deeply committed Christians do live differently. And then he cites uh, he's, he's Gallup. He's taking a playbook out of the o Obama or a page out of the Obama playbook where you just redefine things to make it okay. Like enemy combatants is any male from the yeah. age of 16 to death, and therefore when we blow them up, it's okay. Yeah, so he's saying, me off too. yeah, anyone who doesn't fall, who does not meet the criteria of evangelical yeah. that I like doesn't count. Yeah, Gallup and Barna have these what they call super saints. They have a 12-question survey to identify the heroic and faithful individual. And some of these questions are things like uh, costly behavior. Do you engage in costly behavior for your religion? Do, uh, would you answer yes to the question, I do things that I don't want to do because I believe it is the will of God? Uh, or I put my religious beliefs into practice in my relationships with all people regardless of their backgrounds. 
apparently if you select out just this subset of evangelicals, they do look better than their more nominal counterparts. Mm-hmm. Well, if he gets to do that, I want to redefine general public. <laughs> and looking at this, Which would I, see, I see three of Luke's, um, Luke's laws being violated here. Yes, the uh, this is the version of the whole no true Scotsman uh, fallacy. Yes. That, is, that is where you get to you get to when somebody when you say no uh, Scotsman would commit this crime, and then then they say, well, here are all these proportion of people that did, and then you say, well, those aren't real Scotsmen. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. So what you do is here is that you eliminate really the people that you consider undesirable. So like even when you ask people, are you evangelical? You do get fairly high figures, as as many as like thirty or forty percent of Americans say that they are evangelical wow. Christians. But what Barr actually tries to do when they do surveys is instead of asking people to label themselves, they give them what they think are the the criteria. Do you consider the Bible to be infallible? Sure. Do you consider right. Jesus to be the only because savior? Because the blah, self-reporting blah. or self-labeling can be unreliable. Well, what this guy does is says is constrain the criteria even further to in, to include behaviors too, like that stuff: costly sacrifice. Do you tithe? Do you go to church every week? Again, well, you know, what percentage of people who who are Christians would would meet those criteria? Mm-hmm. I would say that it's so small as to be, you know. Now, if he wants to then say, well, even if it's like you know four percent of of people in the world or in America have meet those criteria, and they're all good people. I'd almost be willing to concede that if you allow me to sure. say that atheists are better people if I can only constrain the sample to include the people who are members who give money, yeah, who, who right. don't if have a criminal. If it's just you, Luke, <laughs> well, then, then atheists are awesome, right? They clearly. all have PhDs. They all yeah. – yes, <laughs> PhD is – you, know, you have to have that criteria. Yeah, I mean you could uh, you could make uh, – any group appear to be the most pro-social and moral if you're allowed the constraining criteria right. to be narrow enough mm-hmm. right. to include all those things. So, yeah, I mean, I, w- I wouldn't have any problem if he suggests that. It's essentially what he's this, this uh, author is saying the good Christians are good people. Mm-hmm. Because right. he's saying, yeah. I have Christians <laughs> yes. and I have people that I narrow it to that, that do all these things. And look at them. They they yeah. don't have teenage pregnancy. They give money. They blah, blah, blah. Because as soon as they get pregnant as a teenager, they're out of the group. Yeah. So yeah. Th- this is essentially great. Th- in my tenfold path. This is called criterion contamination where you're doing predicting something. Mm. But what you're using to predict uh, to achieve that is contaminated with what you're trying to predict. It's yeah. circular. I can sympathize with him, you know not wanting nominal people, people who barely even come to church or mm-hmm. barely even read their Bibles, wanting to, you know, contaminate the reputation of other Christians. Right. But uh, if that's what we're going to do, if we're going to just look at the performance of these super saints, another one of your uh, your Ten Commandments, Luke, um, was uh, look out for curvilinear effects, sure. right? Let's do the same thing. If we're going to compare the super saints, let's look for highly motivated uh, people in explicitly non-religious settings. Super sinners. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> let's call them super, super skeptics. Sinners. Super skeptics. Super yeah, skeptics. Yeah. Right. Sounds yeah. better. If we, it sounds better to say SS. <laughs> I mean, you know, to, to be fair, to be consistent, that's what the, the comparison should be. Right. And uh, yeah. the, the uh, third one I thought... I saw in here was uh, reliance on self-report data because these uh, right. 
these super saints, of course, they're answering self-report data, and then they're also self-reporting their amount of behaviors that they engage in. Yeah, well, people people overreport church attendance sometimes right. as much as like by half because they when you ask people to self-report, what they report on is what they think they ought to say. So if you ask a of Christian, how often do you go to church? They'll say weekly because in their mind they're saying how often should I go to church exactly. is the question. Yeah. Oh, right. but yeah. last week we had that convention. I was out of town and oh, well, that doesn't count though. Or like how, do you give money to charity or tithe? Often people knock off their income. Is that – oh, that's after taxes. Or, you, or know, they, you know, like when yeah. I was a kid in church, uh, when the offering plate came around, my dad would get out his wallet and hand everyone a dollar. And we would all, six members of my family put in a dollar. That's not 10% of his income, right? At least most of, most of our life it was. So yes, tithing, but it's not the, the full tithe that is expected, more or less. We've just seen that relationship enough times where people overly self-report their righteousness. I mean, I, Basically, what these results are telling us is that people who think they're holy think they're holy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I, and actually, I get that objection all the time when I do this in class where I talk about the very tenuous, low correlations between religion and morality is that the, the almost inevitably somebody will say, well, those aren't the people you're talking about. They are not true Christians because otherwise they wouldn't have gotten and, you know, pregnant or beat their spouse or whatever like mm-hmm. that. Uh, you know, and again, that's they're, they're committing this by carving up the pie and excluding those people a priori that you can guarantee whatever result you want. If you're going to exclude the people who are Christians merely because of their actions, that's almost theologically dangerous mm-hmm. because a, a Christian would accept that they're, you know, that they're... They're uh, flawed. Yeah, and, yeah. Yeah. And that they're not, they're, they're going to continue doing that, but that they're, the only difference between them and us is that they're, you know. Uh, you know, yeah, I've also noticed. Well, what are the pastors going to scorn their flock with Sunday morning, <laughs> right? That's true. You need judgment. So, they're all perfect. Right, right. This is, this um, is great. Job. This data is great. The pastors have a job because they can say, you're not being holy. You right. come to church. Um, well, let's turn now to a brand new feature on the show. When Southern Pastors Attack. Um, Let's start off with a uh, real physical attack here from our good friend Creflo Dollar, who we've spoken about before on the show. Prosperity gospel preacher. Yeah, mega Mm. church down in Atlanta. And um, Pastor Dollar is facing misdemeanor charges, according to this article from ABD Local in Georgia. Um, uh, television station, I believe, says that um, he's facing misdemeanor charges after, according to a police report, his teenage daughter told authorities he (laughs) choked and punched her following an argument. Mm. The report says Dollar claims he tried to restrain his daughter. This is what he's claiming. He claimed he tried to restrain his daughter, wrestled her to the floor, and then spanked her after she became disrespectful. Which for 15-year-olds is perfectly appropriate. Well, yeah. well, in a statement, he said that he loved his children and would never hurt them. Exactly. Oh, well, clearly. Yes. Uh, he, <laughs> so. said, he says here, quote, As a father, I love my children, and I will always have their best interest at heart at all times, and I would never use my hand to ever cause bodily harm to my children. 
The facts in this case will be handled privately to further protect my children. My family thanks you for your prayers and continued support. So he's worried about protecting his children. Meanwhile, according to his 15-year-old daughter and corroborated by his 19-year-old daughter, he came into the kitchen and asked his 15-year-old daughter why she was crying. Um, She says that when she said she didn't want to talk, he choked her, threw her to the ground, and hit her. Jesus. And this is a guy who doesn't want to hurt his children. This is a guy he with 30,000 members in his church. Well, you know, what I, yes. fu- what I find interesting, actually, I read the co- if you re- read the comments on that news story that's posted, like it was on CNN and some mm-hmm. of those things, I find that even more, you know, the story itself is not that surprising because we know that right. we've talked about the corporal Sadly. punishment attitudes among the, you know, conservative Protestants and before. But when you look at the comments, I find that more chilling because people were, were like, you know, this shouldn't even be news because this is a uh, parent's right or it's godly mm-hmm. and Proverbs yeah. and spare the rod and all. And the, these people come out of the woodwork. And I was thinking when I read this, we, we do have studies that people who do, who use corporal punishment tend to also report that it's not that, you know, that they tend to underreport any negative effects that it could possibly have. Right. So when he says, I would never harm my kids, they're clearly defining, you know, spanking or yeah. whatever, belting as and things like that as not harm. That's not harm. Right. Yeah. And so that's why, you know, that this is what we just talked about with self-report. When you ask people, have you ever like, you know, manhandled your kids or whatever word you use, they don't define it as that. As long as you say that you have this domain of appropriate physical, mm-hmm. you know, conduct with the kids, you can pretty much justify a a lot of stuff. Um, So that's uh, Creflo Dollar, who's facing some... uh, So uh, our listeners should go out there and boycott all the dollar stores. (laughs) There's no affiliation. Is that... No. All the Dollar General? That's not him? No, that's not... Is he the guy on all the dollar bills? That's that's also not him. (laughs) Um, Now, our next Southern Baptist... Or Southern... I'm sorry. He's not Baptist. Our southern pastor who has attacked. Um, this is a story um, actually from a, a little bit back, but we haven't talked about it yet on the show, and we need to. Pastor Sean Harris, and I'm going to play a clip here from a recent sermon of his Ooh, from uh, back in April. Now, one of the problems is this creeping into our theology, into our thinking, into our worldview. So your little son starts to act a little girlish when he's four years old, and instead of squashing that like a cockroach and saying, man up, son, get that dress off you and get outside and dig a ditch, because that's what boys do. I love Sam Kinison. <laughs> oh, it gets better. You get out the camera, and you start taking pictures of Johnny acting like a female, and then you upload it to YouTube, and everybody laughs about it, and next thing you know, this Dude, this kid is acting out childhood fantasies that should have been squashed. Can I make it any clearer? Dads, the second you see your son dropping the limp wrist, you walk over there and crack that wrist. Laughs. Yeah. Man up. Give him a good punch. Okay? You're not going to act like that. You were made by God to be a male, and you're going to be a male. And when your daughter starts acting too butch, you rein her in. And you say, oh, no. Oh, no, sweetheart. You can play sports. Play them. Play them to the glory of God. 
But sometimes you're going to act like a girl and walk like a girl and talk like a girl and smell like a girl. And that means you're going to be beautiful. You're going to be attractive. You're going to dress yourself up. Wow. You say, can I take charge like that as a parent? Yeah, you can. You're authorized. I just gave you a special dispensation this morning to do that. I'm just picturing the kids slinking down in the pews at this point. Uh huh. Oh, and there, and God. he of course ends it by giving horrifying. parents permission to take charge like that, meaning to punch their children, to crack the wrist of your limp-wristed son. Well, I hope he's held criminally responsible should something happen to one of the kids in that congregation. Well, he did, um, on his uh, church's website, he did post an important clarification to the sermon. Um, He says, quote, By now you know that my words from Sunday morning sermon about effeminate behavior in children are being completely taken out of context what? by those in the LGBT <laughs> what community. What context is there? I, yeah. Unless maybe he said, disregard everything I'm about yes. to say. Or he right said, now that's what a really evil person would tell <laughs> you. <Yeah>, exactly. <laughs> says, clearly I would like to have been more careful with exactly what I said, but sometimes I th- say things without enough clarity. I trust you understood my intent in the context of my total preaching And ministry. I trust you learned from his mistake. <laughs> and um, he goes on then to outline the church's <sighs> stance on uh, disciplining your children and using all sorts of biblical references that say it's okay to hit your kids because you're correcting them. Um, so if it's okay to crack your son's wrist because it's limp, is it okay to, to hit your daughter because she's – not attractive. Yeah, apparently so, right? Wow. You're going to be beautiful. Dress pretty. <laughs> You're going to smell Look nice. Look better. <laughs> but it's really, it's appalling. And, and actually, there was uh, another interview, and I, I couldn't find the audio for it, where he um, clarified and he apologized and said, I wouldn't have used those same words. I stand behind the message that you need to, you know, defeminize your, your sons and Refeminize your daughters, I suppose. And rather than punch, I would have said shove. What? That's shove? much better. Yeah, shove Who your shoves? kids rather than <laughs> punching your kids. That definitely that that really washes the whole slate clean, as far as that goes. Um, really despicable. Um, and we'll we'll post a link to his full statement where he clarifies what he said and really does nothing to help himself out. Um, Now, another um, Southern preacher who's advocating uh, a form of of violence is uh, also from North Carolina, uh, Pastor Charles Worley. And here's what he had to say in response to President Obama saying that he supported gay marriage. Of our president getting up and saying that it was all right for two women to marry or two men to marry, I tell you right now, I was disappointed bad. Uh, but I tell you right there, as as sorry as you can get, the Bible's against it, God's against it, I'm against it, and if you've got any sense, you're against it. I had a way. I figured a way out. A way to get rid of all lesbians and queers, but I couldn't get it past the Congress. <sighs> Build a great, big, large fence, hundred 
50 or 100 mile long, put all the lesbians in there. Where, around San Francisco? Fly over and drop some food. <laughs> Do the same thing with the queers and the homosexuals. The queers and the homosexuals, <laughs> mind you. And the lesbians. These are three distinct categories. Three distinct groups. He's advocating concentration camps, okay? Let's continue on here. And have that fence electrified till they can't get out. Feed them. And, and you know what? In a few years, they'll die out. Do you know why they can't reproduce? So, uh, real quick, um, again, he's working under the assumption that homosexuals come from other homosexuals. <laughs> if we put all the homosexuals <laughs> in a fence, they will eventually die off, and then there will be no homosexuals. That's interesting. He's, in a way, uh, claiming there's a biological reason exactly. <laughs> he's, he's very confused about this. Apparently, um, it's not a lifestyle no, it choice. Could be ro- it could be learning social learning because then all the role, mo- the, all the role models would be in their little fence. Oh, so they would okay. oh. have their own TV. We have to be charitable play, to his argument. Their own soundtrack. <laughs> nothing would get outside the fence. All right. You, you've got to hear the rest of this. The the end is spectacular, is all I can If a man ever has a youngin', praise God, he'll be the first one. All of these. You can just well to amen. I'm going to preach the hell out of all of us. Hey, I, I tell you right now, somebody said, who are you going to vote for? I ain't going to vote for a baby killer and a homosexual lover. So he, like me, is advocating for third-party vote because <laughs> Romney and Barack Obama are pro-choice and pro-gay marriage, or at least historically have been. Uh, continuing on. You said, did you mean to say that? You better believe I did. God have mercy. It makes me puking sick to think about I don't even know whether you ought to say this in the pulpit or not. Could you imagine kissing some man? He's imagining it. God, I love you, fella. That is the actual pause that he takes when he says, Can you imagine kissing a man? He was fighting a boner. He's clearly... <laughs> oh, wait, wait. Got to think of Grandma in the shower yeah. again. Can you imagine All right. it? Going down, going down. All right. Now, where was I at? Kissing a... Ma- oh, God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, on, on... We should go back. Uh, was, the, uh, was, the old, was the message that, from the Bible that day, the Old Testament text that we read earlier on the show with David and his, and his friend Jonathan... They yes. were, uh, remember how we yes. read, read that in a very sensuous uh, way? Yes. <laughs> I most certainly do. I think about it often. Um, <laughs> so there's um, three uh, southern pastors who are um, attacking. And here's one who is himself the victim of attack. Although Satan strikes back. Really? This he, news segment is going to be my guilty pleasure. <laughs> He's a victim of his own stupidity. He's a victim of his own stupidity. Here's the headline. Serpent handling pastor profiled <laughs> earlier in Washington Post dies from rattlesnake bite. This is in the Washington Post. Yeah. Um, last fall, they did an article profiling um, Mac Walford. And, and that's the thing, too, is... The only reason that this is southern pastors attacking is because all of these stories 
are southern yeah, pastors. Yeah, yeah. There are plenty of very smart southerners. There are plenty of enlightened southerners. Southerners are some of my best friends. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but then there are also people <laughs> like Dollar and Sean Harris and Worley and here um, Mark Mac Wolford, um, yeah. who is a um, or was a snake handler, a very well known snake handler as far as yeah. snake handlers go. He was go. a pretty popular he guy saw in the himself, snake handling circuit. Yeah. yeah, yeah, he saw himself as kind of like a one guy army trying to keep this practice alive, uh, even get it legalized in some uh, some states where it's been made illegal. It is legal in West Virginia, which is where he was practicing this. And um, on May 22nd, he wrote on, I believe, Facebook. On Facebook, yeah. He was uh, welcoming people to attend a, uh, a festive outdoor service yeah, this at was, a wildlife this was like reserve. a big celebration for them. Yeah, he says, I, I'm, uh, let, me, let me try to get this tone of voice. I'm looking for a great time this Sunday. It's going to be a homecoming like the old days. Good old raised in the holler or mountain ridge running. Holy Ghost filled speaking in tongues. Sign believing. Praise the Lord and pass a rattlesnake's brother. <laughs> and uh, he did get a homecoming um, of sorts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, during the performance, uh, he brings out the snakes. Uh, I should talk about, you know, some general features of this church. They... Should we should we read the biblical passage for the, this? The proof text is Mark 16. Yeah, yeah. The, which is here we go. It, actually... it, it's here in the article. Mark 16, 17 through 18. And I, I think we've mentioned this before on the show, but it, it bears mentioning when we talk about snake handlers. And these signs will follow those who believe. In my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will take up serpents. And if they drink anything deadly... It will by no means hurt them. They will lay their hands on sick, on the sick, and they will recover. So they have part of the church is this idea of if you have enough faith, you can become impervious was, to yeah, poison part, and this is the part of the Bible fire. we've talked about before that was added, added on, on later, at yeah. the end. Uh, yeah. The original ending of the the earliest text of the gospel yep. was the, the empty tomb, but then this part gets stuck on afterwards, and it's Jesus. Saying, oh, by the way, you know, before I leave, here's all the things that my believers. These are the signs. Here's your superpowers. So mm-hmm. they refer to these as signs and wonders that yes. they will perform. Behind the pulpit, they have a coke can filled with oil and a wick that they light on fire uh, to show that they're impervious to fire. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have a mason jar full of water and strychnine mm-hmm. oh that God. they will drink. Yep. And uh, Mac Walford has drank this mixture many times before. The first time he did it, he said that his uh, that his lungs seized up and his muscles cramped, and he oh barely God. even made it through it, but he did. And of course, they don't seek medical help for this. No, they, they don't they, seek medical help because they understand that being bitten and becoming sick from the poison is going to happen. Oh yeah, yeah. They, but because, the way to heal yeah. it is through prayer. When they are bit, it's not like. They miraculously, nothing happens to them. Yes. Uh, they usually, yeah, they usually suffer. They have a special house where they drive these guys because the pastor's already been bit four times. Mm-hmm. You know, barely made it through some of the previous And runs. in fact, oh his, father his father died from died. being bitten by yeah. a rat- rattlesnake. His yeah, father died when he was, what, 10 years old, 15, 15 years I old? I think, yeah. 
And yeah, yeah watched his father die a long, excruciating death after Jesus. he was bit by a rattlesnake. Yeah, many of them actually that don't die, they still, the, the way that the venom works is that they often have things like amputations or paralyzed limbs mm-hmm. too because parts of their body will be damaged even if they don't systemically yeah. fail. Mm-hmm. There's actually some, yeah, in, the, in the psychology damage. of religion, there's actually a, fa- there's a, uh, a, a psychologist who's at uh, University of Tennessee at Chattanooga named Ralph Hood who has a relationship with these people and he goes and studies them, interviews them, gives them surveys about why you do this, you know, and they talk about the, the motivation and how their state of mind as they're going through this, their, the ecstasy they feel when they've passed through these trials with mm-hmm. no harm. It's really, if, you're, if listeners are interested, there's some literature about what they why they do this. Sort of it's funny. You mentioned Ralph Hood. He's on my shit list. Yes, he certainly is. Because he wrote an editorial about this. And here it is. Brace yourself. Mm. Mark Wolford's death, a reminder that serpent handlers should be lauded for their faith. Yeah. Yep. Here was his reaction to mm-hmm. this. It matters not that this key passage, Mark 16, 17 through 18, mm-hmm. is seen by scholars as a later edition of the Gospel of Mark, or that there is no evidence that early Christians ever handled serpents. What matters is that the emergence of the great Pentecostal denominations in the late 18th century included denom- demonstrations of signs that followed believers willing to put into practice what Christ had commanded. He says, uh, as a longtime student and even admirer of the faith of handlers, I'm persuaded that there is a curious bias in American culture. this is my favorite. This Mm -hmm. bias permits high-risk behaviors among consenting adults for all kinds of dangerous activities, from car racing to hang gliding to football, but excludes religious ritual. Why should religion be any different? Among believers, the plain meaning of Mark is clear. The imperative to handle serpents does not include a caveat that one cannot be bitten, maimed, or even killed. An imperative? Isn't that an imperative? No. Well, that's how these people interpret it. Right. Weird. Yeah. So the plain so, reading, of course. Yeah. Yes. So these are. Uh, so in other words, when when a guy handles a poisonous snake, believing God's gonna heal him, uh, he's it's an act of. He's uh, not doing something foolish. Mm-hmm. He's right. uh, he should be lauded for his great faith. Yeah. Now, I, I agree with... And that with, this is the same thing as football players and hang gliders right. and yeah. everything else. I, I agree with uh, Ralph Hood to some extent that um, adults can do stupid things of their own decision and it should not be made illegal um, to some extent. There are some things that are dangerous um, that are illegal and rightfully should be. Such as, okay, driving a car, that's potentially very dangerous. You could die from doing that. You know you do that when you get behind the wheel. But driving 150 miles an hour is much more dangerous and is therefore illegal. Handling a snake is uh, – and he says there are 93 um, cases of people actually dying from snake bites in the – in the snake handlers church in the last 200 years. 
I'm shocked if the number is that low, except that there are so few snake handlers. Well, there's been a lot of nerve damage and exactly. a lot of suffering and everything else yeah. in addition to those deaths. Exactly. And probably a lot of untimely deaths because who knows how their kidneys are functioning and stuff right, after that. Right. Yeah, and, but, and uh, drinking strychnine. But yeah, I, I agree. I, I do... I don't want to see a, an oppressive state that tries to uh, force us out of any of these activities. But the, the difference between hang gliding yeah. or extreme sports or something is that nobody picks up snowboarding off a mountaintop because they think it's a sign of their faith to yes. God. Yeah, exactly. Nobody's, nobody's being They're pressured to do these things. Because if you're if you're because in the church or if your family are snake handlers um, and you're raised in this church – and you don't drink the poison, you don't handle the snakes, what does that say about you? It says you're not of strong enough faith. Yeah. It says you're not a true believer like the, the others. This so. Mac Wolford demonstrated some behaviors that showed he was a little cautious in who he let do this. So it wasn't just anybody was coming up and to the front and, and holding these snakes. But, uh, but there were other pastors cited in yeah. the original article that were saying they believe this is – necessary for salvation. It's not just a sign or a proof um, that believers will it's an imperative. We'll do this. Yeah, if yeah. you don't believers do this, will you're pick not up snakes and drink poison and all this other stuff. I, so. I believe on the day he died, Mac I think Walford, that should be made illegal. Yeah. Mac yeah. Walford handed a poisonous snake to his own mother in the in the very ritual um, yeah. right before he died. So yeah, this yeah. this happens Can often with, for with, a with, yeah. with some of the churches that have uh, outbreaks of like spontaneous charismatic practices like even tongue speaking. It does create a schism within churches because a lot of people who aren't prone to tongue speaking or things right. like that, they're like, well, you know, I, I'm a Christian, but I don't want to do that or I can't do that or whatever yeah. like that. And they are looked often looked down upon by the signs and wonders people as like, well... You don't have faith, whatever. So, yeah, I think the key difference between this and like snowboarding or, you know, bungee jumping or something like that yeah. is, is that, is that nobody's going to, if you're on the bridge, I, don't, I can't imagine that there's like a group of, of people that are going to be like, well, if you want to be part of us, if you don't, if you're not willing Actually, to Actually, I think up, bungee jumping is a pretty high pressure situation. <laughs> yeah. That's true. Yeah. That's the one. But that, no one's saying, hey, but yes, you're going to hell in eternal damnation yeah, if you yeah, don't yeah, do God this. doesn't approve of you. Different you, thing. Yeah, yeah, you can say, screw you guys. I'm not doing this. This cord looks great on the bungee. <laughs> well, then you don't have faith. And you're, yeah, 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 but Jesus wants you to bungee jump. But the idea that, that Ralph Hood here posits that they should be lauded for their faith. Yeah. Now, we can argue whether or not it should be illegal, and obviously people have because in several states it is illegal. But lauded for this? Should, should they be praised yeah. for doing this stupid Stupid Tonight thing. at 11, snake handling preacher dies. Oh, what a hero. Yeah, exactly. I can't wait. Well, I mean, to see should that. really anyone be, be lauded for any blind faith? Well, I don't you know. No, we could, but, not to get too philosophical, but it actually, you could argue it's a sign of lack of faith because if you need some sort of concrete proof like that, sure. Uh, like, you know, I believe in God and oh, I, I love Jesus, but. I need to see that a snake won't kill me. Then I know that I'm saved. Exactly. That's that's actually a sign that you want some sort of concrete external proof, right. and you assume that your internal processes are not sufficient. So I, you know, it's everybody has forms of evidence. If for them, surviving snake bites or strychnine is evidence. Right. That's actually a sign that they need external evidence. Yeah. Well, what's faithful about that? Um, now uh, one last southern preacher who is attacking. 
Um, and we go now from the American South to the Southern Hemisphere in New Zealand. We uh, have a bit of a stretch on the south. Yeah, it's a thing. stretch. But, uh, but uh, um, so he's an honorable mention is uh, Brian Tamaki, who is uh, – and I'm sure we'll be talking about him more on the show, especially once the not. death toll rises. I hope not. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, you're absolutely right. This guy is is really – a, a new Jim Jones, and and I say that um, understanding the full um, context of that, he is advocating that um, th- to build a new city of God in southern and South Auckland, New Zealand, like Jim Jones, who took his people to Jonestown, you know, yeah, um, to isolate them. It's going to be self-sufficient. It's going to have all the facilities mm-hmm. they need, so they don't have to leave. The difference here is this guy is a mega church preacher. Yeah, that is a huge congregation. That was what was especially creepy for. The, I, I mean, Jim Jones had a big congregation too. I guess maybe mm-hmm. he was a mega church pastor of his age. Yeah, certainly. But I've I've never seen this before. It, it looks, it looks like Rob Bell's church. <laughs> Yeah, it, it looks like this emergent super church kind of kind super of. contemporary music service with musicians, guitars, the whole thing. They have their television screens, mm-hmm. and, and his his face is plastered around this. He's a prosperity gospel preacher. He's saying, you know, he calls himself a believe bishop. in God, you're going to be financially successful, yep. and you won't have any uh, yeah. sicknesses or illnesses or anything. Uh, I've just haven't seen a Jim Jones style congregation come out of that. And and I guess no. and we have to say no one's died yet. No you know. No. It's no. just people who are who But we were talking about a cult, uh, cult of personality. We I mean, are, he's, he's are asking really them to concerned. sell he's asking them to sell their sell houses, all their possessions, donate their money to the church and move into cut an isolated relatives, community. Quit their jobs, it's leave their just homes, a recipe for where he's gonna get the where they're gonna get round of, round the clock indoctrination. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I, I'm wondering, since we do have a, a lot of listeners in Australia and New Zealand, I'm wondering if any of our listeners uh, down there who have been following this story a bit more closely um, could write in to us and perhaps we could have a conversation with them. They've been keeping tabs on uh, – Yeah, let us know. Tamaki, uh, certainly anyone with firsthand experience with uh, yeah, yeah. Bishop Tamaki um, would be fascinating to hear from. So – um yeah that's uh that's our first and possibly last installment of when southern preachers attack. Now kind of tying into that because here in the American South the southern baptists have been making some news and it relates to uh really the favorite theology of our hometown here in Grand Rapids Michigan uh Calvinism. The Christian Post, the most Christian of posts, published an article. Although, wouldn't that be the cross, technically speaking? That's got to be the most Christian post. (laughs) (laughs) The article is entitled Baptist, Southern Baptist Divided Over Calvinism. And uh, it's it's about a new document that's been released by a number of Southern Baptists, uh, a bunch of people signing on uh, a statement that denies that God predestined certain people for salvation and others for condemnation. Uh, It's seen as a move by several people within the Southern Baptist Convention to to head off what they are calling the New Calvinists. Uh, Quoting here, 
Pastor Eric Hankins, who authored this statement, he said he was concerned over the increasing role and influence of the new Calvinism characterized by an aggressive insistence on the doctrines of grace. That would be the tulip the, the, or the five points of Calvinism, which mm-hmm. we're going to talk about in just a second. Mm-hmm. He says here that the majority historically members of the Southern Baptist Convention have, quote, fellowshipped happily with their Calvinist brethren. Um, because most Calvinists have not demanded the adoption of their view as the standard. Mm. Another quote, we would be fine if this consensus continued, but some new Calvinists seem to be pushing for a radical alteration of this long-standing agreement. So we've uh, we've had listeners request before. We we just talk about Calvinism all the time because yeah. we're in a we're in a hotbed of Calvinism here in Western Michigan. Calvin College yeah, is Calvin literally College. down the road Hope from College. where this we're is recording. The World Hope Center, College, yeah. World Center of the Christian Reformed Church. Um, so we sometimes talk about Calvinism and just assume that listeners out there are going to know what we're talking about. And we've had people request before, you know, can you do an overview of the, the major points of Calvinism for those of us who aren't familiar? Luckily, Calvinism makes that so easy because they have distilled it down to a cute little flower of theology. Yeah, a it's nice little Dutch acronym. Geranium, uh... No, wait. That <laughs> I, I'm from a German Lutheran church. We had geraniums. Oh. Or, <laughs> Edelweiss was our... Uh, must have been of it. course, Calvinism, first off, we should say, founded by John Calvin. And that's really, oh, that's where that comes that's from. Where they, that's why they call it that. I don't know if you knew that. <laughs> Quick, historically, once Luther's had the Reformation kicked off, very soon thereafter, then his was up in you know the German part... Calvin was down in Geneva, I believe it was. Yes. And so was sort of so for them for that area, uh, he's sort of the their Martin Luther. Yeah. Example. So we get after the Great Schism, which split the Catholic Church from Protestants, and then from then the Protestant Church has kept schisming until now. We have millions of different sects <laughs> until, of uh, until America. Well, it, it, yeah, <laughs> it, and what we're seeing going on amongst the Southern Baptists right now, people are saying, is going to cause another schism between. The the more Calvinist-minded Southern Baptists and the rest. So, yeah. So for this week's Skeptic Sunday School, we're going to do an overview of the five points of Calvinism, also known as the Tulip, and uh, we'll discuss some of the scriptures supporting that view and some of the scriptures that uh, go against it. Uh, so we'll be highlighting why the Southern Baptist Convention. What exactly do they reject about these doctrines? This touches on a number of issues in soteriology, the study of salvation. Questions like, did Christ die for the sins of all mankind or just the elect? Is accepting salvation a free will choice or is it something that God does for the believer? And even uh, once a person is saved, can they ever lose their salvation? Uh, I personally don't think the Bible comes out on uh, firmly on any of these particular topics. The fact that both Calvinists and their theological opponents, Arminians, can quote a host of proof texts to support their claims uh, shows that the Bible really doesn't have a consistent message on either of these. Chuck this up to more evidence for the disunity of the Bible. Uh, But nevertheless, for people who want to know more about this, uh, we thought we'd give a brief overview. So real quick, I'm going to hit the five points of the tulip. 
as quickly as I can, and then I'll go back through and mention some scripture verses related to them. First of all is total depravity. This one I'm expecting listeners probably are familiar with. The view that human beings are so corrupt, they are slaves to sin, they cannot even understand spiritual things. Because of original sin. Yes, because of original because sin. Because of Adam and Eve eating the apple. Yes. It, it, we are so corrupt from birth, before birth even, that everything we do is tainted yes. with uh, sin. To the, to the extent that a unregenerate person cannot even accept the salvation message without God basically forcing them right. Right. to accept it. It's a little so, rapey, kind of. So, so they, it, yeah. it doesn't mean that they're as corrupt as they possibly could be. Right. It means that exactly. every part of their being is corrupt in some in some way that uh, divorces them in a fundamental way from mm. So whereas divine. Arminians might believe that, of course, human beings are corrupt. Of course, they can't save themselves. Nevertheless... If they hear the gospel message, a person can say, yes, I believe that. Right. I want to accept Jesus as my Savior. The Calvinists say, yeah, not even that. They can't mm-hmm. even say, I see the truth and accept it right. without right. God doing it for them. The So that's the T. The U of the tulip is unconditional election. This is the idea that God didn't have any reason. He didn't select anybody to be saved according to any of their merits. As a consequence of total depravity, God has to choose who's going to be saved and, and who's going to be condemned to hell. And he basically but threw he, names out of half. Yeah, basically. Yes. It's no, it's What's no the merit. What's based on then? Nothing. No, nothing but God's will, his mm. good pleasure. So, yes, no no merit because of if you were to have a criteria, you'd, be, the you'd be sacrificing the sovereignty of God. That's true. What's his criteria then? He doesn't have He's one. God, his Luke. Good, quit asking. All right, all right, all right. <laughs> it's according to his good Move pleasure. Move to the L. Limited atonement, and this is the one that the, I mean, the Baptists are rejecting all of these doctrines, mm. but they spend a lot of time firing away this at this one. This is the biggie. Yeah. Limited atonement, many Christians find offensive because it's the idea that Jesus didn't die on the cross for everybody's sins, mm-hmm. just the elect. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's scriptures that they'll use to try to support that. Uh, but they also make a kind of du- double jeopardy argument. If this is penal substitution, if if uh, Jesus is paying for people's sins, and then there's going to be some people who still reject Jesus, they're paying for their sins. Well, that's twice the sins being paid for. That's way too much. God can't handle so what, to credit yeah. anyone's account. Why would Jesus pay for sins that uh, yeah. for people who are going to hell anyway? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Pharaoh's going to hell. You know, yeah. Jesus, that one's off your account. We don't have to worry about that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yes, uh, limited atonement. Then irresistible grace is the idea that uh, that God may make a general call to everyone to be saved, mm-hmm. but, of course, they're not going to be able to. Uh, so, John, uh, so God makes a specific call, an internal call to some people. And if God makes that internal call, to be saved uh, to you, you cannot resist. Uh, resistance is futile. Nobody can reject God's calling. And so in a way, it's not even a call. It's just it's, God enacting that chain of events that will bring you necessarily to yeah, yeah, his grace. Yeah. It's, it's being forced Because on. if you had some sort of veto over right. it, you could still give the person credit for, you know, not right. vetoing. Mm. Right, right. So, yes, no one can yeah. resist God's election. 
that's irresistible grace. Finally, we get to the perseverance of the saints. This is the once saved, always saved doctrine. Mm -hmm. Uh, Since you did nothing to earn it, you can't do anything to lose it either. Once you are regenerated by God. Which is awesome because I was saved as a young man, and now I've done everything I can to lose it, but I can't. Yeah, so I'm still going to so heaven, why regardless they, of what I do now. The, the Calvinists would probably just say, well, you weren't saved yeah, in the first Yeah, place. so they have so a certain amount of dissonance with people like us who were raised religious yes. because they were forced to say, if you became an atheist at some later point, even if it's after 30 years of Christianity, you never were Christian to be. Well, and it's, and it's, yeah, which is something I've heard a lot from my uh, old Calvinist brethren. But, uh, and, and that is also part of the idea that you never know for sure if you are one of the elect. Yeah, yeah. Um, and That's something that I always bring up. If they, yeah, you, like, you never well, know. Well, I had a very strong internal yeah. conviction, and it's probably similar to what you're experiencing. Right. So. Even, even John Calvin himself did, said, I can't guarantee that I'm elect. He did not. Because there's no way to know until you right. die and you I heard go one to Calvinist put hell. this as uh, you don't want to trust your subjective experience. Exactly. That you want to trust God. So, yeah, you Ooh. can't say I felt this stirring in my heart yeah. and prove that that means you're a Christian. So let's say that you had you have two twins that were raised and they were both model Calvinists and one dies accidentally at 50 uh, and is still Christian. But the other one lives to 70 and apostatizes. They would say that that. The one that apostatizes never was Christian to begin with, but the one that got snuffed out at a younger age presumably died in God's good grace because, well, because he was their their fate was determined before that. Yeah, because like, they were elected. Also, the predestination right. element to Calvinism, where uh, you're either a member of the elect or you're not. Yeah, the way your life plays out is really irrelevant. I could see some negative consequences from having that view. Yeah, I mean the the way it was described to me is that. Um, life is a journey. You start at, at point A, you end up at point B. Point B has been selected by you, uh, has been selected for you by God. Okay, you are going to end up at point B, whether that's heaven or hell or whatever. You can take whatever route you want to get to point B. Theoretically, you could become a mass murderer. You could do blah blah blah. But if God has selected you. To be one of the elect, you will end up at point B. Now, what they will argue is that the way you live your life and the kind of person you are is evidence that you may be – yeah, at, not at, proof, yeah. but will be an indicator After that you may be one of the saved. Yeah. So we've yeah. had this – we've argued about this before, but how is that compatible with free will? It's really not. Well, it's, well, it's going to be a compatibilist well, kind of – Yeah, some attempt to say, well, okay, there's there's – there are scriptures that support that people freely make some choices and that God is sovereign overall. So they must be both. But that's that that part of the journey where you can take whatever route you want to get to the end point. All right. Now, so we aren't going to go. We aren't going to take the time for an exhaustive survey of all these proof texts and fail texts and everything else surrounding these five points of doctrine. The argument I want to make is that actually few, very few passages are decisive at all in this debate. Mm-hmm. Uh, many of the passages that are quoted by both sides could be interpreted, interpreted either, either way. way. So I'll just mention a few scriptures which I, where I think there's really good examples of this. 
Um, for total depravity, uh, often cited is John 1, uh, verses 12 and 13. They'll say, uh, but to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God, who were born not of blood or the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but God. So this is supposed to be saying, of course, God gives them the power to believe. But it says here, but to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God. You could easily interpret that the other way. It's, right. it's the people who accept right. it by faith, Jesus called, that God is now giving them the Holy Spirit. So an Arminian could say, look, that's not a verse that supports your position. Right. Another one, Philippians 1, 29 through 30 uh, for he has graciously granted you the privilege of not only believing in Christ, now that sure seems like it's a little more direct to the point, right, right. but of suffering for him as well, since you are having the same struggle that you saw I had. Well, again, does this have to be talking about individuals' experience, God putting the belief into them? Or is he talking about, since Paul does seem to be talking to uh, Gentiles here, <laughs> right. that collectively members of the church... God has uh, has given us the privilege of being able to accept Christ. You right. know, it it just it doesn't necessarily follow that this is evoking total depravity. Mm. Um, so the Baptists then make their statement as as part of their statement, Article Two, the uh, sinfulness of man. They say we deny that Adam's sin resulted in an incapacitation of any person's free will or rendered any person guilty before he has personally sinned, and they actually quote a lot of the same passages the Calvinists use. Moving on, I want to share real quick for unconditional election. Uh, One of the strongest passages, I think, for the Calvinist position will come in Romans 9. Uh, Really, the whole thing, the whole spread is verses 11 through 33. I'm just going to read a couple of those verses, uh, 11 through 16. Uh, Talking about Jacob and Esau, children of Abraham. Mm -hmm. Or, uh, of, of Isaac, Abraham, grandchildren yes. of Abraham. Mm. Grandchildren of Abraham. Thanks for catching me mm. on that. Paul is saying, even before they had been born or had done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose of election might continue, not by works, but by his call, mm-hmm. she was told, the elder shall serve the younger. As it has been written, I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. Uh, the she in there is what, Rachel? Yeah. yeah. God is a dick well hey then paul says what are we to say then is there injustice on god's part by no means for he says to moses i will have mercy upon whom i will have mercy and i will have compassion on whom i will have compassion so it depends not on human will or exertion but on god who shows mercy Mm -hmm. for the scripture says to pharaoh i have raised you up for the very purpose of showing my power in you so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth he, meaning God, has mercy on whomever, whomever he chooses, and he hardens the heart of whomever he chooses. Mm-hmm. I'd say that is unjust. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Let me just read the next passage. Why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, a human being, to argue with God? <laughs> well, there you go. That is, yeah. the, that is the best cop-out of any <laughs> apologist. Who are you to argue with God? You know what they usually say? Like, uh, you're using rationality, and that itself comes from God. But if I'm using rationality, uh, then and it all comes from God, then the rationality must be good. Your, your rationality is flawed, though, because you don't have the same conclusion as God. Yeah. 
Well, okay, so this is um, this is a very strong passage in support of Calvinism. It certainly yes. seems to be talking about an elect and mm-hmm. this being chosen before the foundation of the world. But the overall context here is Gentiles being saved. Everybody's astounded, remember, now mm-hmm. that Gentiles are hearing the gospel and this needs some splaining. So much so that the the disciples of Jesus didn't even get it until Acts 9. And when the first Gentile did convert, they were shocked. Well, God's uh, Paul is trying to say that it's the Gentiles, or this is what a anti-Calvinist could argue back, is that Paul is saying that the Gentiles are being elected in the same way that God elected a certain lineage to create Israel, his chosen people. Mm-hmm. Now the Gentiles are being elected as a chosen people. With or without people. foreskin, you've and, got and the, a uh, And the other major issue here is that salvation is achieved not by being good enough to earn it, not following mm-hmm. the Jewish law, but just having faith. And he's trying to show that this was a principle in place before the law was actually given by Moses. Right. When you keep that context in mind, you skip down a few passages to uh, Romans 9.30, So just a few verses later, he says, What are we to say? Gentiles who do not strive for righteousness have attained it. That is righteousness through faith. But Israel, who did strive for the righteousness that is based on the law, did not succeed in fulfilling the law. Why not? Because they did not strive for it on the basis of faith, but as if it were based on works. Wait, they didn't strive for faith? Mm, uh-huh. yeah. An Arminian can look Isn't at that, that passage an and go, you're talking about election here. Uh, you're not noticing here that he's talking about striving for faith. It's Paul's more concerned about the means by which they think their salvation comes. Is it through faith, putting faith in God, or trying to be good enough? And so this doesn't apply. And that's, in effect, what the Baptist statement says. Uh, they say... Article 6 of the Baptist Southern Baptist Statement says, We affirm that in reference to salvation, election speaks of God's eternal, gracious, and certain plan in Christ to have people who are his by repentance. We deny that election means from eternity God predestined certain people for salvation and certain people for condemnation. Hmm. Now, I, I want to skip ahead to the very last one, the uh, perseverance of the saints. The idea that you cannot lose your salvation because and I'm going to contradict myself here because I'm going to say I I actually think the Bible, the biblical scriptures do lean in one direction over another on this one. Mm -hmm. The Calvinist idea is that you cannot possibly lose your salvation. And they would uh, they would quote a number of passages. Perhaps one of the best is in Ephesians 1 verses 13 through 14. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's in God's possession. So that does seem to say that the Holy Spirit, once you've been given it, you're sealed, mm-hmm. you're you know, you're fine. And there's a, various other passages that say things like no one could ever snatch away God's children. Uh, Paul says that he's convinced that the life nor death, nor angels, nor demons, nor present or future, any powers can tear away the the faithful faithful from God. So there are several passages that Calvinists can can, uh, quote on that. But the majority and the clearest passages on the matter seem to tell a very different story. And this is especially true 
whenever uh, eschatology is involved, whenever talk of the end times right. comes up, mm. it sounds more like, no, you better stay firm to the end or you are going to lose your salvation. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, Matthew 24, verses 9 through 13, Jesus says, Then you'll be handed over to the persecuted and put to death, to be persecuted and put to get to death. You'll be hated by the nations because of me, and at that time many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other, and many false prophets will appear and deceive many people because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. Uh, or John fifteen one through 6, I am the true vine, my father is the gardener, he cuts off every branch in me, in me, mm-hmm. that bears no fruit. He says, uh, remain in me, and I will remain in you. That's just kind of sexy. If anyone does not remain in me, <laughs> he is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up and thrown in the fire. And the cool thing is that Paul uses the exact same analogy. Hmm. He says, do not be arrogant, be afraid. For if God did not spare the natural branches, Israel, he will not spare you either. Hmm. Consider, therefore, the kindness and sternness of God. Uh, blah, 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 blah. Or in 1 Corinthians 9, Paul says that he has beat his own body to make it a slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified from the prize. But the most damning passages, if you'll allow me 30 more seconds, come from Hebrews. (laughs) Hebrews 6, verses 4 through 6 say, It's impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift who have shared in the Holy Spirit and who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, if they fall away to be brought back to repentance because to their loss they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. Or Hebrews 10, 26 through 31, if we deliberately keep on sinning after we've received the knowledge of truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think a man who deserve do you think a man deserves to be punished who has trampled the son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified him, and who mm. has insulted the spirit of grace? Uh, for we know him who said it, uh, it is mine to avenge. I will repay. That seems Sounds like grace is being resisted. Clear yeah. that uh, someone can be saved and then can turn away from it. Mm-hmm. And the Calvinists like to write this off as a hypothetical. They're saying, "Oh well, what the Hebrews passage is really saying is that God's sacrifice is sufficient for all time." And they're just showing, you know, this when it says it's impossible for those to have been enlightened, they're just meaning that can't ever happen. But come on, well, yeah, yeah. you put this together with all the language of those those passages in the yeah. Gospels, Paul's own warnings. Uh, I I'm sorry, that rationale is simply not flying here. Uh, so I don't have to conclude though that the Calvinists are wrong and the Arminians are right. Uh, Mainly, I think what this is showing, again, is that they didn't have their own theology worked out. Right. Uh, They were still working through these ideas. 
And of course, you turn to different texts and different sources, and you're going to get slightly notions of the mechanics of how all this salvation works. Uh, because there is evidence to support for just about any position that you take on these matters, you're going to get sects who handle prolifer- proliferating. Right. Well, there is one way emphasizing to decide who's the correct, though. Persecution of heretics. So. <laughs> yeah. I don't see any other solution. Luke's wrecking it old school. <laughs> So, uh, tulip in a nutshell, since I know that we have Calvinists listening to the episode now, uh, and their favorite refrain is how biblically ignorant we are, because we don't use just their set of verses and just their right. set of interpretations that they like to attach to it, they'll no doubt be posting all the verses that we, uh, that we did not bring up. I will post um, links to articles, pretty good articles, off of apologetics blogs that lay out in exhaustive detail all the different scriptures for the different positions. And you can read for yourself. You can go through each one and ask, really, really, are any of these conclusive on the particular issues that are under debate here? Always persevere. Um, Speaking of persevering, let's do some counter-apologetics. Hide your faith from the light of reason. It's now time for Counter Apologetics. So in a recent episode of the Reasonable Faith podcast, which for those of you who don't know, is the Bizarro podcast for Reasonable Doubts. It's William Lane Craig's uh, Apologetics podcast. In an evil parallel universe somewhere close to our own. (laughs) And uh, recently uh, a, a... a Christian actually wrote in to uh, pose a question to William Lane Craig, and, uh, and here it is. Dear Dr. Craig, in your debate with Sam Harris on the foundations of morality, a criticism you leveled against his naturalistic position on moral accountability was that his determinism nullified any moral obligations because ought implies can. You said that a person is not morally responsible for that which he is unable to avoid. Since on Harris's view, humans do not have free will, they cannot be held morally accountable for their actions. And yet, on the Christian view of sin, it seems that man's fallen nature makes it impossible for him to fulfill his moral duties on every circumstance as well. Don't you run into the same ought implies can problem here as well? If a man ought to fulfill his moral duties and yet their their human nature since the fall makes it impossible, how does ought implies can work here? Yeah, so I thought that was a pretty interesting question. Um, excellent question. And actually, Jeremy and I were at that debate, the one with uh, Sam Harris. Um, so Craig, his response was, I thought, pretty interesting, um, but I think that ultimately it, it fails to rescue him from this same problem that he accuses Harris of having. Mm-hmm. Um, so Craig, in response, says that the ought implies can issue would apply if you accept the doctrine of original sin, uh, and it would apply to Adam. Uh, Adam made a free choice. He had the ability to abstain from the sin. Hmm. He could have chosen not to. Eve, however, did not because she's a woman. <laughs> right. So here it would it would make sense uh, to say that Adam should have done otherwise because Adam could have done otherwise, right? Mm-hmm. 
Um, now, of course, this alone won't do for Craig because it would only ensure moral responsibility for Adam. And, you know, all of mm. humanity is, is left without this. So there needs to be another piece of the puzzle here. Um, he then says that because of Adam's um, acting as a federal headship of humanity, he represents humanity in such a way that we are held responsible. Federal he acts, headship? Yeah. Fancy. Uh, he acts on our behalf, uh, and he brings up this as... He brings up that this is, in some sense, similar to how a proxy would act at a stockholders meeting, representing some mm -hmm. absentee stockholder. So right? Adam is the proxy for all of humanity. All of humanity, right. Uh, he then adds that our situation is, is like a heroin addict who can no longer... Yeah. Okay. So we're, right. we're all heroin addicts who can no longer resist the addiction... Um, we don't have free will to resist it, but yet we're still responsible because uh, we got ourselves in that mess in the first place. Mm. And uh, and so in that same way, you know, we would still be responsible because of Adam's original freely chosen sin, coupled with the fact that he is the federal headship of the human race. Mm. In summary, Craig says that, uh, quote... Did we elect him as the federal headship? That's, uh, that's what I'm wondering. Um, I would have chosen a different representative. Yeah. <laughs> So Craig says, quote, in other words, he voted for you in the way that you would have voted yourself if you had been there. He was a faithful proxy before God for you. Uh, so you can't complain about his decision because you would have done the same thing if you had been there. Hey, I voted for Nader, so not my fault. Uh, so I want to look closer at this kind of last remark regarding how Adam voted in the way that we would have voted this seems I, I'm, extremely can I, unclear. Can I pause, though? Because I'm not yeah. even sure how is how is that supposed to solve the problem. Uh, because there was one guy at a certain point that did make a free will choice. Right. Then there was responsibility he's at some He's in point. some sense... Because he's speaking for all of humanity. Yes. He's, he our, is, he's our representative... Okay. At the time, he makes the decision. So it's an extreme stretch. And ought, we have to ought, live with that decision. Uh, ought implies can apply to Adam. Right. Right. And okay. so it it the okay, the kind of it. consequences of Even that. Even though he didn't at that point know the difference between good and evil because that was the fruit in That question. was the fruit that he that's right. Right, right, right. Uh, uh okay. So yeah, I uh I think that this is extremely unclear and unhelpful. Yeah. Um, firstly, there are at least two very different things that he could mean when he says this. Um, each, it seems, equally uncomfortable for the Christian in different ways. There's, the first way we could view this is that he voted in the way that we, with our current sinful nature, would have voted if we were in that situation, mm -hmm. right? Um, and the second way is that he voted in a way that we would have voted if we were in Adam's place without a sinful nature yet. Right. He doesn't make this distinction, and then I think this is extremely important. The sec if it's the latter, which seems to be the one I would think he would favor, Right. how can it be free will? You know, uh, if, if there's only one way we would ever vote, that's a kind of a sham free will. Exactly, yeah. So, so the first one... Uh, if he takes this first horn, then he hasn't really solved the problem at all. All he would be saying is that if we as sinners were to take Adam's place, our nature would have a bias towards sin and we would do what Adam did. Mm -hmm. The problem 
With this, of course, is that it would make no sense to talk about having a bias towards sin prior to the origin of that bias. Right. The first sin, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, now, he cannot be a proper proxy for us in our hypothetical decision if he is going to assume the consequences of a particular choice given that dilemma that he's got. Mm-hmm. Um, so if it's true that ought implies can here, then it's actually a really, it's it's a problem for, for Craig as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, uh, you know, if he takes the second horn, that would say um, we would have voted if we were in Adam's place without our sinful nature. If he takes that view, then then there's another issue. Because if my nature in this hypothetical is fundamentally different from the one that I have now, how is it at all, in any real sense, representing me? Mm-hmm. He can't be a faithful proxy to a hypothetical person with a nature that's fundamentally different from the way that I currently am. You know what I mean? Now, another problem I have is that his position, even if it passes, uh, seems to only preserve the abstract general moral responsibility of the human race as a whole, mm-hmm. not the moral responsibility of individual persons. Exactly. Uh, sure, surely the ideal versions of ourselves would not have acted in identical ways in that situation. Sure, we're of the same nature in some sense, but we're all going to have different um, approaches to different problems. We have different experiences. So and, we're yeah. all not going to act in that situation identically. Yeah, so if God is going to say that we're guilty of hellfire for any reason beyond the fact that we are ancestors of Adam, Craig's whole uh, implies can doesn't really doesn't yeah. really help us here. Yeah, he when, when you make that distinction, it's it's very clear that that uh, you know there seems to be no real non-trivial way for Adam to have been a moral representative of the human of humanity. Right. And therefore, there's no non-trivial way to protect Christian theism from the same charge that William Lane Craig has leveled against uh, Harris's determinism in that debate. Uh, and, of course, it should be noted uh, that not all Christians share Craig's view here. According to Theopedia, an online theology <laughs> wiki, That's yes. awesome. uh, quote, the scriptures do teach that man is responsible, but they also teach that he is unable to turn from sin and trust in Christ if left to himself. This is obviously very, a, a very Calvinist kind of yeah, view. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so he says that the idea that responsibility implies the ability, implies ability, is not a scriptural idea. So there's there's plenty of people that are just going to deny this ought implies can mm-hmm. approach right. anyway. But I Which think is, that, I think, smart on their part because yeah. it's not gotten Craig anywhere. Right. All right. Let's wrap up with some polyatheism. Many of our listeners and truly even many of the pathetic uninformed masses who are not our listeners – Maybe at least <laughs> vaguely familiar with the story of the original mother fornicator himself, Oedipus. But unless you've studied or seen an increasingly rare production of Sophocles' plays, uh, you may not be familiar with the role the blind prophet Tiresias plays in the fall of Oedipus the king and his total milf of a mother slash wife. In fact, Tiresias also shows up as a powerful prognosticator in Homer's Odyssey. 
But how did this prolific prophet and sightless seer become the go-to guy for Hellenistic hijinks and Olympian omens? Very well done. Thank you. Mm. Well, that, my friends, is a bizarre and twisted tale that involves dueling deities, sexual strife, and a couple of snakes doing it. The story of Tiresias begins, as so many do, with a couple of serpents engaged in coitus. Tiresias, your average Joe and soon-to-be pawn of the Greek gods, was walking through the woods one day when he stumbled upon a couple of snakes making sweet, sweet serpent love. Long before Jebediah Springfield made it an annual celebration, Tiresias instituted the very first whacking day and whacked the two snakes with his walking stick. This is the Simpsons reference? Yes, that's the Simpsons reference. You pull in there. Uh, Not surprisingly, he was instantly transformed into a woman. As we all know, that is what happens anytime you club a vertebrate engaged in the act of lovemaking. What a strange causality. <laughs> <laughs> of course, when you stumble upon invertebrates having sex and hit them with a stick, you will, over the course of the next year, require one fewer haircut than you otherwise would have. These are facts. Anyway, Tiresias turns into a woman, and as evidence that this myth was written by a man, immediately goes out and becomes a prostitute. I thought you were going to say immediately starts nagging people. <laughs> You've got a limited job market there. Yeah. She probably giggled something about having girl boobs as she went. For seven years, she put herself up for sale and had uncounted numbers of sexual experiences. Then, while walking through the woods yet again, she found another pair of snakes coiling their appendageless bodies around each other for some herpetological heavy petting. By the way, I have no idea how snakes have sex. Every time I tried to figure out the mechanics of it, I got a little ooged out, and I refused to Google it after the Tanuki incident. They just so, braid. They just braid themselves. Is that what it is? <laughs> no. They're like the hair on Avatar? <laughs> well, you see when a daddy snake loves a mommy snake. <laughs> so I, I leave that to our listeners to do the research on how snakes uh, make love. Anyway, the lady Tiresias took her walking stick and once again took a swing at the coupling reptiles. We can only assume, of course, that she didn't hit them as hard this time because women have less upper body strength on average than men. (laughs) Am I right, fellas? Men, men, men. Women and their on average less impressive upper body strength than men? Too bad all they have <laughs> to compensate for it is, in general, being more perceptive of others' emotional states. <laughs> Women be better at multitasking, right, guys? Women be multitasking. <laughs> Women be exhibiting higher levels of church attendance. Sorry if that comes off as sexist. I'm just trying to get into the spirit of the myth there. (laughs) So Tiresias is once again a man. And of course, since the myth was clearly written by a man, he does not go off and become a prostitute, but instead goes off to do loftier things like barbecue or (laughs) employ his on average greater capacity for spatial reasoning. I find that stereotype offensive. (laughs) Not the spatial reasoning. Oh, oh, okay. (laughs) Meanwhile, 
Up on Mount Olympus, the home of the gods, Zeus and his long-suffering wife Hera are engaged in an argument. I'm not sure how they got into this argument, but Zeus was arguing that women enjoy sex more than men, while Hera claimed that men got more pleasure from it. Though, of course, she suspected that she was wrong, but still had firm to, held firm to her position rather than admitting that Zeus was right. No intellectual the, integrity there. Yeah, exactly. Now, even though Zeus has been known to change into everything from an eagle to a golden shower, apparently he drew the line at becoming a lady to find out for himself. So, instead, he called on Tiresias. Tiresias was uniquely qualified to settle this dispute, being the only mortal to have ever experienced life as both a man and as a woman. When asked, Tiresias admitted, in fact... That women enjoy sex more than men. Seven times more, in fact. Which tells us that not only was this myth written by a man, but it was written by a man who had a wife who could pull off a very convincing fake orgasm. (laughs) Maybe she just had multiple orgasms. Seven of them. Uh, Hera was enraged and she cursed Tiresias with blindness. Zeus, on the other hand, was delighted by the win and granted Tiresias the gift gift of foresight and incredibly long life. It's at this point that Tiresias outgrew his own myth and started popping up in others. He warned Oedipus that he would kill his own father and sleep with his mother. He dropped a ton of spoilers to Odysseus and showed up elsewhere offering wise counsel to men and women alike even though they frequently failed to listen until it was too late and they already had four incestuous offspring or something else awful like that. So there you have it, the story of Tiresias, accidental gender swapper, visionless visionary, and just one more mythological misogynist worth not believing in. For for reasons I didn't foresee, this episode has been entirely about about male... Uh, Obtuseness and snakes. Uh, I know we have this. Yes, the, the theme has been coming back again. Unintentional to male uh, obtuseness and snakes. Thread there, but that's going to do it for us this week. Um, in the meantime, until our next episode, you can write to us at doubtcast at gmail dot com. Follow us on Twitter at doubtcast, Facebook slash doubtcast. YouTube.com slash Doubtcast, where there's a bunch of videos that you can share with uh, friend and foe alike. That's all for this time. Thanks for listening, and um, we'll be back soon with more Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. To catch up on past Reasonable Doubts episodes or to email your questions or comments, check out www.doubtcast.org. Reasonable Doubts is a production of WPRR Reality Radio. You can find out more about Reality Radio at publicrealityradio.org. Reasonable Doubts theme music is performed by Love Fossil and used with permission.